Hey, this is the Last Coffee House. We are back to literature. It's The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford, a British author. The subtitle is A Tale of Passion. <laughs> Take that for what you will. It, it was published in 1915. It's set just before World War One. That was hard upon if it was 1915. Just right in anticipation of all the things that would be going on thereafter. It tells the story of Edward Ashburnham. And it uses flashback in non-chronological order and an unreliable narrator. John Dowell was the narrator. So it's got these different mechanics that it's using. That at this point I'm sure we had seen before. But it is kind of a unique structure. So what's the concept? of this book. The first sentence is, quote, this is the saddest story I have ever heard, end quote. That's the opening sentence. And I've actually got, so that I don't wallow in my own bias <laughs> when it comes to my feelings about this book, I got a description from a reviewer who thoroughly enjoyed the work. And so I think it does a really good job of describing what the book's about. I'm not going to go through the contents beat by beat. I will have some quotes for you and I know that sometimes I go through the whole plot explicitly and sometimes I don't so bear with me it depends on the book so here we are this is a description of the story the story seems simple two wealthy couples one American and one English meet at a spa in Germany and spend several years in comfortable friendship until it is revealed that the American wife and the English husband are carrying on an affair that the English wife knows about but the American husband does not after the deaths of the adulterers more and more is covered about both the conduct and the emotional meaning of the affair. The story is narrated by the American husband and is in some sense a detective story, but he is no investigator. The facts come to him unwillingly since he would have preferred from the beginning not to know. The suspense depends not on what has happened, as dramatic as it turns out to be, but on the narrator's unfolding interpretation of the passionate emotions manifested in very small gestures or brief remarks. That was Jane Smiley from 2006, her review of that. So, I've got some quotes that we are just going to wade into. Did I just have a bit of a Boston accent? I've got some quotes that we're going to wade into from this book so you can get the writing style, the ideas that are expressed in it, and then we'll go through an analysis to see where it stands. Of course, this is in the best of literature reading list. It's somewhere in the 80s, I believe, for the best of literature as we make our way up to number one. So here are some quotes. Quote, I know nothing, nothing in the world of the hearts of men. I only know that I am alone, horribly alone. No hearthstone will ever again witness for me friendly intercourse. No smoking room will ever be other than peopled with incalculable simulacra amidst smoke wreaths, end quote. I don't like the writing style. <laughs> I think that it is jagged, uninteresting, and overwrought. But you be the judge. Quote, I haven't, unfortunately, so that the world is full of places to which I want to return. Towns with the blinding white sun upon them, stone pines against the blue of the sky, corners of gables, all carved and painted with stags and scarlet flowers, and crow-stepped gables with the little saint at the top, and gray and pink palazzi, and walled towns a mile or so back from the sea on the Mediterranean between Leghorn and Naples. Not one of them did we see more than once, so that the whole world for me is like spots of color and immense canvas. Perhaps if it were so, I should should have something to catch hold of now, end quote. I really think that it's just not well put together. It's not musical. It's not lyrical at all. It's not well put together. And for all the unique words that might make their way into it, it just doesn't fit well. I just didn't enjoy reading much of it. Now, this is one, again, I read a little while ago, and I took all my notes for it. I have all my highlights throughout the whole book. You know, I read the digital copy. And then I went back to try to get an idea of the things that I that stuck out to me. And these are all the quotes that I pulled out from it that stuck out to me. Quote, is all 
this digression, or isn't it digression? Again, I don't know. You, the listener, sit opposite me, but you are so silent, end quote. And this is emblematic of the kind of really too on-the-nose, broad, I don't, there's something just too direct about so many of the things that he has to say. When you have an unreliable narrator, there's a fun kind of thing that you can do with it. You can use it to seduce a reader. You can use it to annoy a reader or uh, just drip particular things as part of a broader plot structure. You can do all those sorts of things, but to me, this book just kind of goes right at it. It'll have the narrator just say things that are too straightforward, and it's difficult to get across without you actually seeing how it's how it's done. So, quote, ah, she was a riddle, but then all other women are riddles, and it occurs to me that some way back I began a sentence that I have never finished, end quote. And when it comes to the emotions being expressed, or the way the characters are, what the characters think, it all seems too annoyingly straightforward. And we'll get into some of the thematics that are allegedly there that other reviewers have pulled out of it. But when I think of unreliable narrators, the things that come to me, you know, it's like Lolita or Pale Fire, when you think of those kinds of narrators and how that functions to tell a story or to do something literary, it's so much more interesting. <laughs> than what is done here and it's it just felt mostly frustrating as I was going through it and I just I didn't care whether there were bigger structures that were going on that some of the reviewers try to pull out of it anyway quote yes she became for me as it were the subject of a bet the trophy of an athlete's achievement a parsley crown that is a symbol of his chastity his soberness his abstentions and of his inflexible will of intrinsic value as a wife I think she had none at all for me I fancy I was not even proud of the way she dressed end quote and this is what I mean just the obvious and directness of it you know when you compare it to something like to the lighthouse which is similarly episodic and plays with time and you have to be suspicious of the storyteller and how it's how the story is and it explores ideas about relationships and gender dynamics and all those sorts of things this just seems like uh, an extremely light version of that kind of writing and that kind of story quote he imagined that no man can satisfactorily accomplish his life's work without loyal and wholehearted cooperation of the woman he lives with and he was beginning to perceive dimly that whereas his own traditions were entirely collective, his wife was a sheer individualist, end quote. Again, just, I mean, it's really blunt. It's a really blunt literary method that just... It's just kind of telling you, okay, here are a couple of things, and leave it at that. It's It doesn't seem to be particularly artistic in the way that it's going about these things. And it makes me feel like the things like uh, being non-chronological, being told by an unreliable narrator, that those kinds of things are more just gimmicky sheens as opposed to necessitated structures so that you get a better literary experience. Quote, when the palpitating creature was at last asleep in his arms, he discovered that he was madly, was passionately, was overwhelmed overwhelmingly in love with her. It was a passion that had arisen like fire in dry corn. He could think of nothing else. He could live for nothing else. But La Dulce, La Dulce Quita was a reasonable creature without an ounce of passion in her. She wanted a certain satisfaction of her appetites, and Edward had appealed to her the night before. Now that was done with, and quite coldly, she said that she wanted money if he was to have any more of her. It was a perfectly reasonable commercial transaction. She did not care two buttons for Edward or for any man, and he was asking her to risk a very good situation with the Grand Duke, end quote. And as we'll get into when it comes to the characters and the gender dynamics within the characters it seems pretty superficial the way that it functions quote i have i'm aware told the story in a very rambling way so that it may be difficult for anywhere to, for anyone to find their path through what may be a sort of maze i cannot help it i have struck i have stuck to my idea of being in a country cottage with a silent listener hearing between the gusts of the wind and amidst the noises of the distant sea the story as it comes end quote speaking directly to the reader which could be fine or 
interesting, but really just kind of seems like it's saying what it's saying and there's not much else to it. <laughs> Quote, she remembered that Edward's eyes were hopeless. She was certain that he was drinking too much. At times he sighed deeply. He appeared as a man who was burning with inward flame, drying up in the soul with thirst, withering up in the vitals, end quote. And that broad psychological writing where it's trying to talk about what a character's doing or feeling or how their brain is working or something like that that is kind of amateurish. <laughs> It doesn't, it's not all that interesting or creative. Quote, I don't attach any particular importance to these generalizations of mine. They may be right, they may be wrong. I'm only an aging American with very little knowledge of life. You may take my generalizations or leave them, end quote. Again, it, I just, I don't know if the writer, and he's he's dead now, right? I don't have to worry about hurting his feelings. <laughs> um, I don't know whether the writer really has all that much depth to him <laughs> or all that much interest in the world in general. So that was the last quote. Let me get to some analysis here. So the women especially did not seem complex. They just kind of seemed like fill-ins for the very limited emotional notes about like the frailty of masculinity, which again, I don't mind as a topic, but it didn't seem to be explored and the women seemed superficial. They, there wasn't much to them. It was actually originally called The Saddest Story and it was changed by the editor to The Good Soldier, which is a little more, <laughs> that's what I mean, because The Saddest Story is like like, as obvious and straightforward as it could be. And the good soldier actually has some kind of a complexity to it. You wonder what that actually means. Why is it a good soldier? Why is it a soldier? When so little about this is about war or anything like that. What's the fight? What's the war? So, if the original story was the saddest story, that was the original title, that's what the author wanted. And he didn't like the good soldier as a title. Then I wonder if the author really was just interested in uh, just working out his own emotional issues related to adultery or relationships. Or, or whatever, and there wasn't really much else to it. So just so I can counterbalance my disdain for this work, <laughs> I have a character in The Good Soldier from 20th Century Literature, a magazine uh, written by Michael Levinson in 1984. This is what he thought of it. Quote, by the end of the novel, Dowell has tested the limits of rational explanation. He has interpreted character by religion, nationality, gender, and the calendar. Dowell's disillusionment follows the arc of modernism. He begins with presuppositions typical of much Victorian characterization the individual conditioned by circumstance, composed of intelligible motives, susceptible to moral analysis, the justified self. Then, confronted with singularity of desire, his generalizations totter and fall. End quote. I have no idea what he's talking about there. I tried to go back through and piece together some kind of broad thematics about the history of modernism and the arc of modernism to try to figure it out. I couldn't see much of anything in this. It did not seem to have much interest in philosophy or thematics or sociology or or the history of literature, or anything like that. It seemed to me like more emotional incontinence than great literature. And it was just too blatant and obvious to be interested in or take seriously. So I could be wrong about that. Like I said, I didn't get into it as I was reading it, so maybe I missed a whole bunch and it was just actually incredible. Uh, but <laughs> to me, it just didn't seem like something that I wanted to or would read again, or something that I would put amongst the greatest works in literature. I know it was on a, a couple of lists and I don't know maybe it was the mechanic of the unreliable narrator plus the non-chronological storytelling you know when you have those things together and it's set before World War One, maybe those things together just make it seem like it's especially profound but I would love to hear anybody who has a counter to say that they're not it seems like a lot of people are pulling a lot out of this that isn't necessarily there <laughs> I really feel like this author is 
just pretty superficial and doesn't have much interest in anything and there's not much to get from this particular story but could be wrong okay so that was the last coffee house that was best of literature i don't know what number this is as always it will be in the title and we'll make our way to number one and see how that goes otherwise look out for some more books i do have a book on amazon it is john shade reads that's what it's called volume one john shade reads aspiring authors volume one where i just read random chapters from people unpublished authors and critique them in brilliant and humorous ways obviously so if you want to look at that it's on amazon otherwise i will see you on the next one all right bye